Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through Swedish history, one episode at a time. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa, and this is episode 51 that we've decided to call Medieval Trivia. We've gotten up to the early 1300s on our journey, and after spending a fair few episodes talking about royal drama and kings and politics, we thought we'd dedicate a couple of episodes to entirely different matters. Our most recent episode, episode 50, we talked about mining and the Great Copper Mountain Mine in particular, which is Sweden's oldest still operating company and perhaps the world's oldest still operating limited company. Today we thought we'd collect the interesting things that we've come across in our research but that didn't fit in anywhere in particular or wasn't really extensive enough to merit an episode in itself and just do an episode all about various random aspects of medieval life in Sweden. Yes, today's episode will be a mix of medical history, the life of children, what Swedish people did for fun, some art, and a bit more. But first, we should talk about the Swedish phrase of the week. And this week's phrase is kasta sten i glas hus. So that literally translates to throw stones in a glass house. Yes, and when you're in a glass house, you really shouldn't be throwing stones because you'll break the house that you're sitting in. And that's what this phrase is all about. It means to criticize someone or something for something that you yourself have done. So don't be hypocritical, essentially. It's often used in the negative, as in don't throw stones in a glass house. Kasta inte sten i glashus meaning don't be hypocritical, don't judge someone for something that you yourself have also done. So in a sense, it's exactly the same as the English phrase, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Uh, It's exactly the same. So instead of throwing stones in our not glass house, what should we do? Should we move on to our first topic for the episode? That's a great idea. And what is that? I thought we'd kick off with looking at medicine and diseases. This will become a much greater topic of interest quite soon in our timeline when the Black Death engulfs Europe, including Sweden, in the mid-1300s. We'll probably dedicate at least part of an episode to the Black Death when we get to it, but now we thought we'd touch upon some other common illnesses and what was done to help people who got sick. Leave them to die. (laughs) Before we get started, though, I think we should just briefly touch on the topic of sources. And in general, there are less sources, especially written sources, that describe ordinary day-to-day aspects of life in this period in Sweden. Just as we've seen up until this point, we've mentioned this quite a few times. It really isn't until the late 1400s or even into the 1500s that we start to have letters and diaries and that sort of thing preserved from what could be called ordinary people and that could give us some insight into these people's lives. 
So what historians tend to do to research these topics, apart from looking at the very few letters and written accounts that do exist, is mainly three things. Firstly, they look at other types of written sources that there are from the period, and these are mainly records kept by churches, monasteries, legal records, and letters sent to the king, for example. These give us some insight into the everyday life matters, such as what was considered moral or immoral, views and opinions on death, the afterlife, and other religious matters, as well as what people did for a living, where they lived, and what their households looked like. We saw a bit of this when we looked into the trials of Baltulf, the man tried for heresy in Sweden. Secondly, of course, there are archaeological sources. They tell us what people's homes and farms looked like, the different living conditions in different parts of the country when Sweden is so big, and the difference in living standards between groups in society. They also tell us what sort of objects and tools people used in both their work and free time. Archaeology tells us a lot about trade and connections both within the country and to places abroad, because you find objects in one place that can help you determine where they came from, if they came from somewhere else or just down the road, and you can find different coins from other countries popping up, so there's a lot of stuff to look at. And last but not least, osteology, meaning the study of bones, can tell us a great deal about what people looked like, what they ate, and what sort of injuries or illnesses they suffered from. And on that note, what happened when people got sick? Well, first, most of them would uh, either try and forget it or they would pray. True. That's step number one. As we talked about extensively in our two-part episode about Christianity in the High Middle Ages, this is a deeply religious time. The Swedes who lived in this time period were not just devout Catholics themselves, but Christian doctrine and authority also influenced pretty much every aspect of their life. So yeah, the first thing people did, likely did, when they got sick or injured was to pray, in the firm belief that divine intervention was real and possible. Christianity also influenced the first medical institutions that reached Sweden. In the Middle Ages, monasteries began setting up proto-hospitals, gathering knowledge on treatments of injuries and illnesses and growing herbs and plants used in various remedies. But these monasteries with medical centres, if we can call them that, were few and far between in Sweden, especially in the 12 and 1300s. But we will see this come more and more into the story, especially when we encounter one particular Swedish saint later on. Yes, we'll have to wait and see who that is. But apart from the belief that you got sick or injured due to divine intervention, maybe as some sort of punishment from God, the firm belief throughout Europe in the Middle Ages was you got sick because of an imbalance between your bodily fluids. The belief was, and like I said, this persisted for quite a few centuries, was that your body consisted of four different types of fluid. Red, which was blood, green, which was phlegm or snot, and yellow and black, both of which were bile. When do you get black bile? Or, or maybe that's a question that I don't want to know the answer to. Probably a lot back then. Um, yeah. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> Ew. Um, but either way, the belief in these four different fluids and their different colours and reasons and that imbalance between them caused you to be sick 
also had an influence on the most common treatments for almost any kind of illness. Because if the issue is the imbalance of the fluids, well then the cure quite naturally was to try and restore the natural balance. This is why bloodletting and sweating were two of the most common treatments for a wide variety of illnesses across medieval Europe. Actually, with this obviously bonkers idea of the four bodily fluids and their imbalance, medieval Europeans stumbled across two treatments that did help. The herb meadowsweet, which at least here in Scandinavia was used to induce sweating, does contain salicylic acid, which reduces fevers. It is actually the same ingredient that we find, albeit in its chemically refined state, in medicine like aspirin. Bloodletting, which I mean sounds frightful, does actually help to reduce high blood pressure. Although it's not very efficient, nor safe, because it's difficult to control and the risk of people getting infections in the wounds must have been substantial. They did have these implements called cautries that they used to burn the skin and the implements and thereby prevent infections, but it's far from a complete method of sterilization. I wouldn't recommend it, it's fair to say. No, definitely not. If you have high blood pressure, uh, probably just see a doctor, not cut your arm off. Yeah, please. Along those same lines, medieval Sweden did have some access to basic surgery, believe it or not. Again, this was at high risk because of the lack of understanding of infection and with severe pain because of the lack of anesthetics. But archaeologists have found catheters made from lead used to treat urethral methyl stenosis and other urinary conditions. That's my favorite one. <laughs> yeah. Broken bones seem to have been relatively common. As they are today. Yeah, but judging from examinations of skeletons from both Skåne and the Mälardalen region, they were able to set the bones right again, and most simple breaks seem to have healed relatively well. Good for them. And speaking of skeletons from Skjorna, a study of 3,300 skeletons buried in Lund from between 990 and 1536 give us further indications of what life was like and what sickness ailed the people at the time, even though this was Denmark back in the day during all of that period. Yeah. But uh, it's Sweden now, so we can count it for the sake of this study. And what it showed us is that arthritis, which is still relatively common today, seems to have been much more common in the Middle Ages, and to have affected people at a younger age too. Scientists agree that this is likely due to more people conducting heavier physical labour and more often. They wore their bodies out, quite simply, in a way that we don't do to the same extent today sitting at our desk if you have a desk job. These skeletons from Lund, along with others that have been studied from the area around Sigtuna, indicate that there were no substantial malnutrition in Sweden, or Denmark if you uh, consider that Lund was Danish at the time. Yes, some people definitely did starve, and a lot of people definitely lacked food at certain periods, which is a risk that affects everyone who lives off 
subsistence farming. That's true to this very day. But looking at the whole population over a longer period of time, the average height for both men and women stayed much the same, which scientists believe show that people could stick to more or less the same diet over a longer period of time. However, if you were born in the 12 and 1300s, you should count yourself lucky if you got to grow to any height at all, because child mortality was very high. This is mainly due to an inability to treat many common illnesses and infections that can affect babies or young children. Death for women during pregnancy and childbirth was also much higher than it is in Sweden today, again for many of the same reasons that childhood mortality was high. They were not able to treat injuries and illnesses that women sustained. Nonetheless, historian Frederic Charpentier Jungqvist argues in his book Den Långa Medeltiden, The Long Middle Ages, that death rates for women during pregnancy and childbirth might not have been as high in Sweden during this period as was previously suspected. However, many women married very young, as we saw with Princess Ingeboy, for example, who was only 14 when she married Duke Erik, and only 16 when she had their son, who was to grow up to be King Magnus. Women being pregnant and giving birth in their teens, and especially their early teens, run a higher risk of death and serious injury, which may have been what skewed the overall rate of medieval Swedish women dying during pregnancy and childbirth. Uh, what if you were one of the lucky ones that did survive and got to become a child or a young person in 13th century and 14th century Sweden? What was your life like? Well, as is always the case, this differed depending on which societal group or class you belonged to. Indeed, if you were the son of a king, you quite often got to be king around the age of five. So that's one prospect for a child. Yeah, we've imagined a lot of baby kings playing with their Lego whilst other people run the country for them. <laughs> so yeah, they were very young when they became king, at least a lot of them in recent times. But I don't think that was the norm for most kids. No, most kids didn't get to uh, be kings when they were five. So what did they get up to instead? Well, what was the norm for most kids was that there was no school, which some kids today might be rather envious of. Well, at least there was no formal schooling, of course, except for the very few who were sent off to pursue a career in the church. These kids, as we mentioned in our medieval religion episodes, were exclusively boys and mainly from more well-off families. And they were sent to church schools where they could learn how to read and write. And this was a skill that most Swedes didn't possess in the early and middle of the Middle Ages. And they would learn things like biblical studies. Instead, the vast majority of kids got an informal schooling from their parents and other adult members of their household, whereby they learned the skills that tradition deemed necessary for their class and gender. That meant that a girl from a landowning family would learn how to manage a large household, which was what women in her societal group did, whereas a boy from a poor, landless labourer family would learn to plough and in other ways work the land. Uh, boys and girls from the poorer sections of society, and especially those who didn't own their own land, were often sent away to work at larger farms and estates. 
they were often paid in board and lodging, along with a small salary in actual money. And Chris, you want to know something fascinating? Yes. Even back then, women were paid less than men. Yeah, I mean, in some cases, continuity is nice, but this is maybe one of the ones where we should break tradition. One thing that seemed to have benefited women on the medieval labor market was that they seemed to be less affected by seasonal unemployment. There was a very strong division of labor between the genders, and what was considered work for men, like sewing and plowing, was more seasonal than what was considered work for women, like milking cows and making cloth, which is something you do throughout the year. So if you work on someone else's land, you're less susceptible to like, oh, now there's a few months where we don't need you, so bye-bye. Indeed, and court records from medieval Sweden tell us two interesting things about children and young people in 14th century Sweden. First was that whilst there was no official statement on what was considered the legal age for maturity or the age when a person could be held legally responsible for their actions, common practice among the courts across Sweden showed that a person was considered an adult in the eyes of the law at 14 or 15 years old, and this was true for both boys and girls. The second thing that court records tell us is that children seem to look after themselves a lot, especially when they were too young to be of any real use on the farms. Up to the age of 10, children seem to have been left alone to play, often with very little adult supervision, other than naming the older children in the group to look after the youngest. The fact that most families and households were larger than what our modern nuclear family often is today, with labourers and their children and relatives and so on all living under the same roof, and the farms often being located closer together in a village, must have meant that there was no shortage of playmates for most people in medieval Sweden. That's nice. And speaking of nice things, when we look at historical records, it's easy to think that life must have been very serious with no room for fun and games for the people who lived in days gone by. Obviously, that is not true. People had the same need for fun and games and drive to create them as we do today, but it was seen as less important to document it. Instead, what they did document, and consequently what we see in the records, are serious matters like dates they died and crimes they committed. And as such, there are no records of organised sport in medieval Sweden, but it seems at least medieval Swedish men enjoyed playing sports on a non-organised level. These sports weren't really what we'd call sport today, with teams and rules and, yeah, competitions, but more like improvised games on the spot, often mimicking war and battles with things like boxing and wrestling and stone-throwing. Ball games seem to have been less popular in Sweden than elsewhere across Europe, but swimming, running, and of course everybody's favourite Nordic pastime cross-country skiing was enjoyed by Swedes then just as it is today. And, of course, let's not forget Tug of War, which uh, Sweden won an Olympic gold medal in back in 1912, back when Tug of War was still an Olympic sport. This was also done in the Middle Ages. I think we really need to bring back Tug of War as an Olympic sport. That would be great fun. 
If anyone from the International Olympic Committee is listening, which I know is a long shot, but please bring back tug of war. Uh, by the way, Chris, do you know who Sweden beat in the tug of war final in the Olympics in 1912? The German Empire. <laughs> no, Britain. Oh, Great Britain. Yeah, Great Britain. And it was a home victory as well, because uh, the Olympics in 1912 were hosted in here in Stockholm. Nice. Was this the Olympics where it wasn't actually Sweden, it was a Sweden-Danish victory, a joint team? No, that was in 1900s, oh, okay. I think, that they won the tug of war as a joint Sweden-Denmark team. Interesting. We're probably going to do a special episode on early Swedes in the Olympics because there's some crazy stories, including the world's oldest gold medalist is some 75-year-old Swedish shooting person who won the 100-meter moving deer target or something in 1920-something. Yeah, we're not going to spoil too much because, yeah, we're, we are thinking about doing a special episode, but Chris and I fell down a massive wormhole of research where instead of researching medieval Sweden, we got stuck on looking at, at fun facts about the early Olympics. So, uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe more on that later. Yeah, we'll get back to that. But another sport that's also very close to Orsa's heart, just like tug of war, was fencing. And this was done by Swedes, or at least Swedish men, already way back in the Middle Ages. Cool. Long before I started doing it. Yeah, definitely. However, just like today, swords were quite expensive, and this was a sport reserved for the upper classes. For much the same reason, horse riding was also primarily done by upper class people too. More gentle pastimes for medieval Swedes included playing board games. Chess reached Sweden around this time, and a board game called Nefertafel which sounds like the Heffalump's best friend in Winnie the Pooh, but Nefertafel was very popular and dates back to the Viking Age, uh, actually, although historians and archaeologists have unfortunately not been able to decipher how it was played, which is a great shame. Yeah, and I'm sad they didn't find a medieval Monopoly game as well. That would have been fun. A fight over who would be the horse, the iron, the plough the hut and the Jarl symbol. No, I think medieval Swedes had the good sense to not play Monopoly, since it is the most boring of all the board games. Controversial quote. Yeah, um, I stand by that. I find Monopoly incredibly boring. I'm sure Nefertafel was much more fun. You probably don't like Monopoly because you lose. Like oh. you lost, you were destroyed by me at risk over Christmas. Oh my God, don't forget. Chris was ridiculously proud because he won our Boxing Day uh, risk game that we played uh, against, well, not against, with your parents. Well, I was against everyone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You, and I won. Risk really brings out dictatorial qualities uh, in you. But we're not going to bore the listeners with uh, our board game stories. Uh, why don't you move on to the next topic? Another thing that medieval Swedes have in common with most modern day Swedes is that they wore clothes. At least most of the time. 
Yeah, most of the people, most of the time, unless you're in the sauna. And because they were made from organic material like wool and linen, and to a lesser extent also cotton, clothes are rarely preserved for archaeologists to look at. Instead, what we know about medieval clothing comes from depictions like etchings and engravings that tend to depict wealthy people and descriptions of people in court records and similar documents. Men often wore trousers, although they weren't necessarily long trousers, but more often some sort of half-length ones that went over the knee, and then you had long socks in winter and a long shirt or tunic. The trousers were held in place with a belt or a simple piece of string around the waist if you couldn't afford a proper belt. Women wore dresses and many had underskirts to keep them warm, especially in winter. The most common outer garment for both genders was a cape, which is excellent. And leather and hide was also used to make outer garments for winter wear and of course to make shoes. And it seems like nobody wore any sort of underwear at all. No, underwear is a surprisingly recent invention that really didn't take hold in Sweden until we were able to start having a more large-scale import of cotton. It's interesting that something that we take for granted to the extent that we take wearing underwear for granted hasn't always been the case. Indeed, and two things that developed during the early period of the Middle Ages and were probably relatively common by this point in our timeline was that regional differences in the way Swedes dressed became less significant. During the Viking Age, historians have spotted a significant difference between the west of Sweden, where clothes were more influenced by British and Icelandic ways of dressing, and eastern Sweden, where they can see an influence in styles from the Kiev region and all the way down to Central Asia. This goes hand in hand with the established trade routes from those places at the time. But this difference diminished as the medieval period went on, and Sweden became more homogenous as an established state and took more influences from nearby Europe. The other thing that developed during the Middle Ages was the practice of married women covering their hair. This is likely due to the extensive influence of the church, since having your hair covered when you're a woman was often seen as a sign of modesty and piousness. Medieval Swedes were quite unhygienic and generally quite dirty. There are records from other areas of Northern Europe that depict Saturday as a bath day, but historians are unsure if that practice reached up to Sweden. Interestingly, Swedes seem to have washed less and less as the Middle Ages wore on, since a belief took hold that water was dangerous and could upset those famous fluids and their balance in your body. In contrast to their perhaps uncleanliness, medieval Swedes seem to have been fond of combing their hair. Combs are one of the most commonly found objects in archaeological excavations, and during some periods it seems likely every person must have owned their own, considering the volume that has been found. Medieval Swedes also weren't as grey and drab-looking as we might imagine them. Natural cloth dyes were used extensively, meaning that people didn't have more of a fashion choice than we might think. These natural dyes weren't very expensive, which meant that even poor people could dress in more colourful clothes. Instead, what distinguished rich from poor in terms of clothing was more the quality of the cloth and the amount of clothes each person had. Speaking of medieval Swedes being dirty and not wearing underwear, do you want to talk about sex? Why not? 
This is a topic where there are very few sources, because just like today, this is something that concerns the most private aspects of our lives, and historically we've left fewer records of those private matters than of public affairs, but historians have been able to deduce a few things. The fact that the Catholic Church became more and more established and ingrained in people's lives during the 11 and 12 and 1300s led to a change in views and opinions, as well as laws, regarding sexuality. Simplified, we could say that it got more restricted. Sex became something that should be conducted between a man and a woman within the sanctity of marriage. However, for a long time, looser unions and couples cohabiting and having children without being married remained relatively common in Sweden. During our episodes about the Viking Age, we talked about frillor, which was a term that could both mean women who got paid by men for sexual relations, but more often denoted women who cohabited with a male partner without being married. Even though the church did its utmost to stamp out this practice of frillor, it remained during the Middle Ages. Views on sex and relationships might have gotten more conservative during the Middle Ages and because of the influence of the church, but one arguably positive thing that the church did bring about was the idea that both parties should consent to a marriage. Arranged marriages were common and remained common, especially in upper classes of society throughout the Middle Ages, but the Catholic Church at least kept an eye on this idea that both men and women should enter into a marriage voluntarily, even though we can imagine that there was a certain amount of unofficial coercion from parents and families in some cases. From church records, we can tell that the average age for men to get married remained relatively constant at around 20 throughout the Middle Ages. In the period that we've gotten up to in our timeline, so that's the early 1300s, women married young, at least by today's standard. 15 was a common age to get married, but it was not uncommon that girls were even younger. This changed during the late Middle Ages and women and men's marriage age became more equal. Historians don't really know what caused this shift. Men had an obligation to provide for both their wife and children, which might explain why they were older when they got married. Children being born outside of marriage was frowned upon and seen as a societal problem since it wasn't determined who would provide for them, but it's unclear if it carried quite the same stigma as it would later on in time. Court records indicate that local communities tried to determine who the father of a child was and make him pay for the care of his child if they weren't living together. Swedish society at the time might have been preoccupied with children being born out of wedlock, but they seem to have cared less about the idea of women being virgins, and especially virgins when they married. Instead, that's an idea that seemed to have gained cultural importance later. In a sense, medieval Swedish society was practical. As long as there were no real-world consequences to deal with, well, then people didn't make a fuss. 
nonetheless, the idea of the sanctity of marriage had become more ingrained in society and in the culture of the country, which is reflected in legal practice. In some landscape lager, the local laws that only apply to a specific county, only the infidelity of women was criminalised. I guess this is because the consequences of a woman having sex outside of marriage led to consequences, aka children. But as the landslark, the federal sets of laws that governed all of Sweden grew, they included more aspects of infidelity in general, both for men and women. But how about we move on from all this sex talk and move on to something more slightly cultural and fine art? Sounds great. During the Middle Ages, Sweden moved from using rune writing, which we talked a lot about in episode 21, to using the Latin alphabet. This shift was very gradual, though, and records and archaeological finds indicate that writing with runes remained common in shorter pieces of writing and in less formal writing. The Latin alphabet and language was very much the language of the church, and since the church and its representatives did a lot of the writing in medieval Swedish society, their Latin ways gradually took over. Back in the High Middle Ages, most church operations, including the weekly Sunday Mass and other church events, were conducted in Latin. But Latin was never a language that was spoken or understood by most Swedes, and by the mid-1300s, there was a counter-movement to instead bring back Swedish as the language used by the church and the law. This became the norm and quickly replaced Latin, actually, which had never gotten a very strong foothold into general Swedish society anyway. What is interesting is that Swedish became the standard language for both church operations and legal and state affairs throughout the Swedish kingdom, which as we know included Finland, in the 1300s. As a consequence, Finnish continued its existence as a spoken language, but didn't develop a written language until the 1500s. However, it didn't matter too much what language or alphabet was used in writing because the majority of Swedes couldn't read or write anyway. Reading and writing was something that was limited to people who worked within the church, in the running of the state and royals, which, to be fair, was a small section of society. For the rest of society, oral traditions and verbal retellings of stories and information was still the main way of conveying both facts and entertainment. When we think of the Middle Ages, we uh, might often imagine knights and heraldic culture and tournaments and all of this fun stuff. In episode 44, we saw how King Magnus formally created the nobility and the knights with the Alsner Stagda in 1280. And with that, and with influences from the continent, came the increased cultural significance of the knight and knightly behaviour. This meant that increased importance was placed on acting chivalrously and being polite and educated, showing bravery and loyalty to your liege. This was captured in poetry and literature of the time, such as the Euphemia Visana, the Euphemia Songs from the first decade of the 1300s, a collection of three tales about knights commissioned by Queen Euphemia of Norway. The increased importance placed on knights and knightly behaviour was also a way for the nobility to distance themselves from the rest of the population. Since it was only the nobility who were made knights, this was a cultural expression that mainly lived within the nobility and the upper classes. 
As such, it gave them a means to act and talk differently from the rest of the population, where this cultural expression was less popular or perhaps just less known. This doesn't mean that the rest of society was devoid of art and artistic expression. Archaeological finds show that an effort was made to make even relatively simple objects like furniture ornate, and during the 12 and 1300s, floral patterns seem to have been particularly popular. When it comes to larger objects, like entire buildings, the 1200s saw the birth of the Gothic style, first in France, but it would make its way across Europe and also reach Sweden, where it remained the dominant building style well into the 1500s. Churches in particular were built in Gothic style, characterized by pointed arches, slim spires and large windows. The practice of building churches in Gothic style also meant that Swedish churches grew larger, taller and had more light shining in. Stuolkyrkan here in Stockholm and the cathedrals in Linköping, Skara and Uppsala are examples of Swedish Gothic style that remain with us to this day. Gothic-style paintings introduced a more realistic style of painting than previously. This can be seen in how depictions of Christ and the Virgin Mary became more realistic, basically that they started looking more like people and not godly, ghostly, alien-y, out-of-worldy type figures in these portraits. It's also from the 1200s that we start to have preserved images of royals and nobility, often in the form of wood carvings, like little statues, on church walls or on their tombs. Finally, on the subject of art, for obvious reasons we have no recordings of medieval music, but we know that organs were introduced in Nordic churches in the 1200s, making them a staple of church music here, Uh, As far as I can tell, most, if not all, Church of Sweden churches still have organs. But people didn't listen to music just in the church. Musicians who played the flute, bagpipes or drums and walked around from village to village played music as a common form of entertainment, the Swedish bagpipes. Um, Records that describe social gatherings among ordinary people indicate that singing together and dancing was a common and popular way of socialising. But there was no dancing together two and two. No, that's a practice that would need to wait for a few hundred years before the Swedes were introduced to that. Instead, various circle dances, or what we'd call square dance or line dance today, was the dance craze of the entire period. A bit like a Scottish Cayley, I guess. Which I love, personally, so I feel like I'd have a good time at a medieval Swedish party. Well, that is it for uh, medieval trivia and this little episode on medieval life. Next episode, we're returning to our timeline of royal and political events to see what young King Magnus gets up to. And now that he uh, sits, maybe he sits on a little cushion to be high up enough, but he sits on the throne, the joint throne of Sweden and Norway. And speaking of royal events, we've received a very nice email from our listener Linda to update us on a bit of the complicated 
Denmark, Sweden, Norway drama back in 1305 uh, that we just plainly missed. Yes, and if you remember, and we don't blame you if this particular bit has slipped your mind, but we mentioned back in episode 47 that Danish Count Jakob Nilsson sold his part of the county of Halland to the King of Norway, who almost immediately gave it to his son-in-law, Swedish Duke Eric, as part of their alliance. We actually made a joke that Count Jakob maybe just ran out of money and wanted to sell it on to the King of Norway, but Linda has let us know that it was actually a bit more complicated than that. Exactly, and for that we say thank you, Linda. Uh, so what happened was uh, the Danish king, Erik Klipping, was murdered in 1286. The belief is that nine Danish nobles were guilty of the murder and they were convicted the following year. Count Jakob Nilsson was one of these unruly nobles, and they were all made outlaws. Quite rightly, perhaps, as the story goes that the assassins dressed up as monks and hacked the sleeping king to death, with him receiving 56 stound wounds. Quite brutal, and perhaps unsurprisingly, most of the murderers fled Denmark, except for Jakob, who stayed in his county of Halland. Worried that the Danish state and the guardians of new king Erik Menved would seek retaliation, Count Jakob built a fort in Varberg for his protection, one that Linda was actually a tour guide at for many years, hence her knowledge of this part of the story. Eventually, being a rebel in his own county and own country takes its toll on the Count, and the fort wasn't enough protection for him later in life. So in 1305, he leaves Denmark and seeks refuge with the Norwegian king. This is when he sells or turns over his county in Halland to Norway. So it wasn't a case of selling Halland just to get a bit of extra money. It was in some ways a consequence of him moving to Norway to escape his enemies in Denmark. Perhaps this was a payment to the Norwegian king to help keep him safe, a way to make money to fund his life in exile, or just to make the king a sort of protector of his lands down in Denmark whilst he was away. Either way, it wasn't just a quick fire sale to get a few gold coins. Indeed, and thank you Linda for adding some colour to this part of the story. The problem when we get involved in these three-way giant inter-Scandinavian battles and wars is that each individual person in Norway and Denmark have their own personal reason for getting involved and their own backstory, so to speak. So inevitably, we'll miss something with these uh, side players to the story. And if you have realised that we've missed something, big or small, then do get in touch. Yes, on social media or use our email like Linda did, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. And one other person who got in touch recently, a few uh, weeks or months ago by the time this is out actually, is Dalibor from Croatia. He's been catching up with some of the episodes that we released a long time ago and got in touch about something we talked about back in episode 27, the way society was made up in the Middle Ages and medieval period in Sweden. Specifically, he was writing about how Sweden started to create a society with almost three levels, the nobility and royalty, the landowners, and the freemen or peasants. We've exchanged a few emails on this, and it's come down to a sort of final question that's a bit in two parts. 
Did this mean that Sweden had a middle class, so to speak, relatively early on? And did this mean that Scandinavia developed the ways of living and society that we have today earlier on and faster than anywhere else? So it's a bit of a sociological question, really, about the growth of free people who owned land rather than the country just being nobles and peasants. It is, and it is a pretty big question, one we don't really feel qualified to properly answer, apart from the observation that in some ways it does look like we are looking at the gradual development of something like a middle class in Sweden. Spoilers, tax-paying landowners will start to flourish after the Black Death. And already in our first proper episode about our next king, King Magnus, we will see that this was the first election of a Swedish king where this class of society was allowed to vote in the very rigged and not fair elections that there were, but still. So yeah, if you have more information or would like to discuss this further, do get in touch. Delabor has given us permission to pass on his email address to anyone who's interested in talking with him about this. So uh, please let us know and we'll put everyone in touch for a nice, interesting conversation. Yes, so if you want to talk about the growing emergence of a middle class in Sweden and whether or not this led to Sweden being like it is today, get in touch. And for that matter, if you don't want to get in touch about that, you could also look at our website, uh, flatpackhistoryofsweden.com, where we've got some family trees and lots of other fun stuff on there and uh, lots of, yeah, good things to add to just the listening experience. Yes, and please leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on. And with that being said, it's goodbye from us. Hey, Dor. And a board game called Nifnafatafl. Uh, not sure not, at all how that's going to be ne- pronounced. It's Nefatafl. 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 Yeah, Nefatafl. As far as I can tell, most, if not all, Church of Sweden churches still have organs. Nice. They can play the um, uh, Imperial March from Star Wars. I bet they do that all the time. I bet every organist at some point when the church was empty has done that. Man, this is good podcasting.